Hello and welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. We're back for another week here. Training camp has started. The preseason and the Hall of Fame game is around the corner. And unfortunately, with preseason comes injuries. So the first thing we'll get into is the Carson Wentz injury. Uh, But we also have some positive news as far as contracts being signed with Nick Chubb. So we'll talk about that. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast last week with Kevin Mears. If anyone didn't hear that, go ahead and rewind back to that. He was the research and development strategy guy for the Browns, director there during some of the Sashi era. But we don't really go into that stuff. We go into a lot of higher level macro ideas about who you want your franchise to be. And I thought that Kevin was excellent discussing all of those things. So go ahead and rewind back there and get there. Uh, before I get into the NFL news, just a quick reminder for PFF right now, we have for $9.99, we have a draft guide available, which has all of our rankings, including my own, which has locked article content as part of that cheat sheets uh, for your fantasy draft. And all of that is part of the fantasy suite for just so check that out when you can Um, I'm gonna have a lot of content coming up and I'm also gonna discuss at the back half of the episode some work I've been doing on expected fantasy points which is a tool that we built which accounts for down distance field position and uh, all those different things when it comes to what you would expect rushing the ball and then when it comes to receiving or passing also that stuff, but then going even further into where the target is exactly located on a horizontal basis, uh, whether it's play action or not, whether or not the target is, the catch is contested, all that stuff. So I'll be talking about that at the end of the show. So let's get into Wentz first. Um, Not good, right? His injury here, Uh, a lot of different implications for this. So he has a mid foot injury. It sounds like a bone is broken off. There was some question as to whether or not he would have to have surgery. As of the recording of this podcast, the news broke yesterday. And this is being recorded on Tuesday. So you're probably gonna hear this on Wednesday, but it broke on Monday that he has surgery coming up here. And the time frame is wide. I mean, this is a big time frame, five to 12 weeks. And in addition to that, it sounds like it may be a little ginger. When he, you know, I have to be a little bit ginger, no pun intended with Wentz there, but um, you may have to be walking a little bit gingerly, maybe not rushing as much, which is at least a component of his game. Scrambling and extending plays is definitely a component of his game. So it could have a big effect on him going forward. So the question everyone wants to know is what are the Colts going to do in a season where you know, they traded a first round pick for DeForest Buckner in the past, they paid him a bunch of money. They made some signings in free agency, although they haven't been super aggressive there. They brought back T.Y. Hilton. They made this trade for Carson Wentz. What are they going to do? Because this is a team they're hoping will be a playoff caliber type of team. So first implication for the trade that happened with Wentz, it's kind of a positive and negative for both sides of that trade. Um, the big negative for the Colts, of course, is that Wentz is not going to be playing the positive. If you want to take it as a positive, although you wouldn't want this to happen from their perspective, is the fact that it's probably unlikely that he gets that 75% snap threshold, which moves the pick that they will receive. Um, I'm sorry, that they will give away in next year's draft to the Eagles. That probably is going to lock it in as a second round pick and not a first round pick. 
And from the Eagles perspective, you know, the negative is that, and the positive is, you know, they moved on from Wentz and it sounds like this injury may have happened no matter where he was, that it was an existing injury he's had all the way going back to high school that may have still happened. And that's the thing about Wentz, when we're talking about injury proneness, I know you don't want to assign too much to a particular player, but Wentz is someone who has had injuries in high school, elbow soreness in high school, in college, he was injured multiple times, missed a lot of action because of that, which made his evaluation a little bit difficult coming into the NFL. And then now, of course, in the NFL, the ACL injury, uh, another injury the previous year where he couldn't finish things out, this injury here, some um, arm soreness. I think he had some elbow soreness after his rookie year. There's just a lot that's been going on. And if you look at the way he played last year, he was sacked so often that he takes a lot of hits. And it's one of those weird things where we find in the research that bigger quarterbacks and he is, I think he weighed in something like 235 pounds at the combine. Bigger quarterbacks are normally also taller quarterbacks normally also provide a bigger target in the pocket. And sometimes they can get injured more often than the smaller quarterbacks. And you think these smaller guys like Russell Wilson would have trouble with injuries, but the reality is they can protect themselves a little bit better. And although Wilson's had some ankle sprains, things like that, he hasn't missed any time in the, in the NFL so far. Uh, but getting to the implications of what the Colts are going to do, I think you have to first look at the organization. And because of the fact that they have traded away a couple of picks, you have Chris Ballard, who is someone who's been really aggressive trading down as part of the draft, accumulating draft capital, not being someone who wants to play things out and like the Saints just continually be in win now mode going forward, or maybe even the Rams, you could say, are now doing that to an extent. That's not the Colts. They're also not a big spending franchise. We looked at, they had a ton of cap uh, that that was not spent the last year. They really had Andrew Luck there and they made it all the way to the, uh, what was it? I guess it was the divisional round. They didn't make it to the conference championship, but they lost to the Chiefs in the divisional round and the Chiefs went on and lost to the Patriots in the conference championship. But they had a lot of dry powder there that they didn't use. Now they've started to use some of this, but they're very conservative about going out and, and spending money. They're very conservative about going out and spending draft picks. So we don't know what they think of Jacob Eason, who's in-house, what they think of Brent Hundley, who I kind of like a lot, although he was, he was god-awful with with the Packers there's no doubt about that but I like Hundley because he can run and he has some decent numbers back when he back when he was playing in UCLA and he's a big fast dude um you know what are they what are they going to do are they going to want to stick with those being that Wentz could be back for a decent amount of the season it just seems like that to me is much much more more likely but it is interesting to at least think about what moves could be made I don't expect these moves to be made. I think we're, they're going to lean forward. And I think Ballard is not feeling the type of pressure that you might expect someone in his position to feel to win now uh, because his job is on the line. I'm not sure that he's in that, that similar sort of situation as, as it would be for another GM who's been, in, who's been in power for many years but hasn't quite gotten over that hump. So the, the things that are being floated out there, Jimmy Garoppolo is a big one. Uh, I think it's wishful thinking on the part of the 49ers fans, probably more than anyone. Although I will say with Garoppolo, there's the news that we hear on Tuesday is that Trey Lance went from someone who wasn't going to get first team reps to getting first team reps and thriving, at least in the confirmation bias world that I'm in where everyone loves Trey Lance. So they're going to pump up what he's, he's doing and, and going to retweet all the different positive things about Trey Lance. 
So it seems like things are not going that well for Garoppolo in training camp so far, going well for Lance. And the reason that's important is Garoppolo has $24 million he's due for his salary. So this is not a cap number. This does not have signing bonus built into it. This does not have a roster bonus that's already been paid built into it. This is a $24 million salary that's going to be paid out during the season that is not guaranteed. Remember, as a veteran player, you play week one, boom, it's guaranteed. As a veteran player, any NFL player, you get injured, boom, that is a guarantee now. You are stuck paying him that money for the year. So the fact that the 49ers are willing to allow Garoppolo even to take snaps in training camp where you would think he's got the, you know, the yellow Jersey on, he's not going to get touched. He'll be, he'll be okay. Uh, It's still dangerous. Obviously players get injured in camp. Normally not quarterbacks get injured in camp, but players get injured in camp. Now, if we move a little bit further forward to the preseason, are they going to let Garoppolo take preseason snaps? If he gets injured in the preseason, that's $24 million. And it's not just, you know, do they need the money this year? It's do they need, do, do they want to roll over that money to, till next year? Remember, they're missing their draft pick because of the Lance trade up in the first round for the next couple of years. So they're going to want to have that money available to be able to potentially build out some of the roster and free agency that they may need. Um, so I would really look closely at the 49ers because there's going to be an inflection point at some point where they decide to let go of. Uh, Jimmy G and they just straight up release him rather than have that liability there and increase that injury risk every time he takes a snap. Now, would the Colts want him? Uh, $24 million is a big problem for the Colts, right? I'm sure that the 49ers be willing to absolutely give Garoppolo away for a contingent seventh round pick if they've decided that Trey Lance is the guy. And again, for the 49ers, I think you really have to say, we're going to accept some of that floor risk that comes in with, with Trey Lance. And if he's going to be our quarterback next year anyway, and the following year after that, let's just give up a little bit of that floor that Garoppolo maybe gives you for this season and say, let's be willing to accept that he can move, he can run. Um, let's let him go. So I, I think the Fortnite has been willing to let him go, but there's gonna have to be a restructure on his contract. And I think Garoppolo may be willing to do that. I mean, what would end up happening? I'm not sure. Probably we're looking at something like, you know, a 10, $12 million salary instead with a bunch of incentives built into it that he would not be calculated into the cap because of the fact that he hasn't earned it. But again, India has just been, the Colts have been one of the cheaper franchises out there. So I don't know if they're going to be willing to do that and give up some draft capital as part of it and go through the negotiations and everything else, starting off from scratch. The other name is out there a lot. Nick Foles with the bears. He's still under contract for a couple more years there at least. And it's not too Expensive of a contract, but how much of an upgrade is Nick Foles, actually? I think there's probably differing opinions on that. I know he has a relationship with Frank Reich from when they when they were together um, with the Eagles. So there's something there. I think that's a possibility. The one understated possibility, and I don't think this is likely to happen, but I think it should be more thought about than it is. And I would say not Nick Foles being that person, Right. But I would say Andy Dalton is an interesting guy to potentially trade for. Um, But you have to understand a couple different things if you're seriously going to consider trading away Andy Dalton as the Bears. Uh, Number one, in a similar manner, how is Justin Fields playing? 
And I think just accepting the fact that Dalton is a one-year guy, he is a floor raiser. Do we care about floor raising? How much do we care about floor raising? Uh, I presented some numbers on this podcast uh, a number of weeks ago about starting quarterbacks when they end up starting. For first round quarterbacks, it's 30-something percent start in week one. Uh, if you talk about who starts by week two, it's almost half of them are starting by week two, first round quarterbacks as rookies. And then if we're talking about who's starting by week eight, it gets to, you know, 70, 80%, very high number. And who ends up starting in the first year, it's almost everyone. The only names that we have who didn't happen, and I think Jake Locker, it didn't happen. Jordan Love, of course, it didn't happen just recently. But other than that, uh, Brady Quinn is another guy. It took, took a while to, to get going there. But other than that, even almost everyone ends up starting at some point. So if you're going to be starting fields at some point, and you likely are, you have to start thinking about what you want out of your backup. Do you want to keep Foles or do you want to keep Dalton, who can perform on a much better level, I would say, than Foles. If you look at what he's done throughout his career, he can give you a better bridge for the Colts. He's going to be very, very cheap for the Colts because of the fact that he has a $10 million salary and $7.5 million was already paid out in a signing bonus. So the Bears would have to eat that cost. But guess what? It's a sunk cost anyway. This was a signing that you made before the draft. We see it all the time, whether it's Mike Glennon, whether it's uh, Sam Bradford in a couple of different locations uh, when he was with the Eagles and when he was with the Cardinals, that he was there uh, in advance of the draft where you don't know who you're going to get, right? Um Teron Taylor was brought in for the, the Browns, although they knew they were going to get, they still brought him in as a floor guy where they kind of just wasted money and, and a third round draft pick trading for him there. So a lot of money in, and picks are just wasted as part of this. We have to understand that's almost like built into the equation now that you've drafted Justin Fields. So you have to think about that as sunk cost. And if the Bears can understand that sunk cost, they have a $2.5 million contract on Andy Dalton that really would fit in well to exactly what the Colts the Colts need. Now, what sort of pick would they want to accept for that? I mean, they're probably going to want a fourth-round pick or something like that. Uh, that might be a little steep, but in all honesty, it also takes away for the Bears an impediment that you have where you brought Dalton in, you told him he was going to be the starter. You have Matt Nagy, as we heard on the Chris Collinsworth podcast, say there's almost no scenario under which Fields ends up being the starter. I think you can now relieve yourself of some of that burden for the fact that you fell into this quarterback selection in, uh, in the draft that you didn't know was going to happen, uh, that Dalton is now an impediment to probably making the right moves going forward and go ahead and use this as an opportunity to get rid of him. So that would be my favorite thing for the Colts to do. Again, I don't think anything is going to happen. It's going to depend a lot on cost, but I think the Bears should be willing to accept a very low trade compensation for doing this because the floor risk is overstated. Um, you're not getting that much and it's a sunk cost. And when you start learning as teams, and we're seeing this with a lot of dead cap that teams are willing to take, that the sunk cost is not the worst thing. And you have to always be moving forward. You have that as a fallback plan, but then don't let it affect everything you're going to be doing moving forward. All right, before we get into the next segment, we're talking about Nick Chubb here. I want to talk about Western and Southern insurance. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement and investments, compensated endorser, 
products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, Nick Chubb. So running backs, do they matter or not? They matter to the Browns. I did think the Browns were going to be a test case for whether or not there was a team that was willing to trade away a running back who would have trade value, in my opinion. The problem is we haven't seen this happen, right? We have not seen whether it was in the case of Ezekiel Elliott, Christian McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, um, Dalvin Cook, Alvin Kamara. All these have happened in succession, right? These contracts, Todd Gurley, um, but Gurley was probably not going to happen. So we haven't, we haven't seen with any of these, the idea broached of trading this, running back. This, these running backs were all taken in the first or second round, right? Um, early second round too for Henry and for Chubb, not like the mid or the late second round. So the, they all have a lot of draft capital invested in them. Like what can you get for Nick Chubb going into a final season if they were going to trade him after being in three years in the league? I think that's interesting. And it's an interesting opportunity cost to know when we're discussing this issue. But the problem is we don't have anything to base it on. I have no idea what other teams would be willing to give for the right to pay these guys um, a, a contract. But what we can do is we can compare these. We can kind of look on a contingent contingent upon the fact that a team wants to resign their running back. Was this a good deal or not? I think that's a good way, at least initially to look at this. And I think this is a great deal for the Browns. If you assume that they wanted to bring back this player. Uh, if we look at the details of the contract, it's $12 million a year it is 17 million fully guaranteed at signing. There's a $12 million signing bonus. So Chubb's going to make a little bit more money um, over the course of the next couple of years. But the thing that I don't like about this deal is that the Browns are playing with fire a bit. Uh, just as beyond the whole running back thing, like let's let's not think too much about the specific value of this particular player who was an excellent, excellent, excellent running back. And I have some research that I'm going to come out with uh, later this week where I'm looking into the value of running itself. And I'm finding a decent amount of value uh, in like a repl- over replacement, um, this PFF plus minus methodology I have where I look at when players are on the field and off the field, what sort of value do they bring? A uh, Nick Chubb type of running back, maybe we're talking in the range of 15, 20 points over the course of a season. So two thirds of a win uh, on the high end, which is more than I would have thought uh, for someone like that. So I think there, there potentially is some value here, even though he's not a heavily, heavily used guy. But when you break down on a year by year basis, when we're looking at this contract, remember the Browns are paying more today for their offense than any team in the NFL. And it seems a little bit weird to say that because you don't think of like super, superstar talent on this roster. Uh, but, you know, Beckham had the big contract that he signed back in 2018, which is now not a high, high end contract, but it's in the, it's in the teens as far as how much he's being paid million this year. We have Jarvis Landry, who signed a relatively big deal when he came over as part of a, he was franchised, then traded to the Browns. And then ex- he was then um, extended right then. Right. So he got that big, that big contract, which is still living on till today. They have an expensive offensive line. Uh, they brought in Jack, Jack Conklin, not uh, just most recently. The left tackle, uh, Wills, is not too bad because he's a rookie. But then some other positions there, Betonio and 
Treader are also veteran guys that they signed a few years ago that are not on rookie deals that are on their second contract. So it's, it's, oh, and then of course, Austin Hooper, who they're paying, you know, top five tight end money. So all, you combine all those together um, and you're paying some cash. You're paying some, some good cash out to, to all of these guys, uh, including um, also Njoku, who's on their fifth year option. So not a decent amount of money there too. Uh, so when it comes to Chubb, by doing this, if you look at how they structured this contract, it really highlights the cap uncertainty, um, the cap tightness that a team that you would assume doesn't even have their quarterback on a second contract should not be experiencing this, right? Um, because Chubb's getting this $12 million bonus up front, and then his base salary is a minimum, 920000 this year as part of this deal. And then next year, it's $1.2 million. Right. So his cap number this year and next year is 4.7 million, 5.2 million. Then it bumps up to 14.85 and then 16.2 in the final season, final year of this contract. Now, what's what's good about this contract from maybe from the player perspective and the uh, team perspective is only a three year extension. I think it's actually a little bit even better from the team perspective. If you're able to keep all that stuff down, uh, not sign a running back up till the age 30 season, he'll be 29 when he gets out of this deal or he'll be 28 when he's, when he's um, negotiating a possible extension on this deal. So it is good for him in that way, um, but it's short. So that's good, but they're definitely locked in for the next two years on this contract where the cap number is low. And then if you look at the third year, they're going to have to take an $8 million dead money hit if they want to get out when his number bumps up to 15 million. And that number is going to bump up to 15 million at the same time as the miles Garrett contract is, is growing. If they resign ward and, um Mayfield you know it's not going to be the lowest number in 2023 for those guys they'll probably have to be extended next offseason or if you want to think in the future after a franchise tag again those numbers are big that's going to become an issue so we're already seeing we saw void years the Browns used already on some contracts so we're seeing some chicanery some Eagles and Saints type of stuff to push and kick the can into the future and do we want to be kicking the can in the future for a running back? Again, we don't know the opportunity cost. I wish I could be in those meetings and figure out what they could have gotten for a trade. Um, he is a valuable player. And I think he is a player who I was surprised that he took the second tier contract because I thought that he might even be seen as being higher in some minds than uh, Dalvin Cook and, and some others uh, because of the fact that he was this prototype guy before he had a catastrophic knee injury. I think that catastrophic knee injury or near catastrophic knee injury they had in college probably plays into this too. He was a second round pick. He hasn't made a ton of money. Boom. He's going to get that $12 million signing bonus right up front here. Um, I think that's a good peace of mind for him and maybe why he, he, he would have, he would have taken it there. If you want a, a great breakdown on it, Jason Fitzgerald over at, uh, over the cap has some good information there. We've put out a piece at PFF to deal with a lot of this stuff. Um, so my overall take on this would be, it's a fair deal, I think, for the player and for the team. The team probably gets a little bit of an advantage on there, uh, but the player gets the peace of mind taking it early. But in the overall scheme of things, I think it's a negative for the Browns. I don't think there's any other way to talk about it. Uh, with Hunt still under contract at a much cheaper level, probably not that much of a drop-off for what he can do. Uh, I understand you want to keep your good players, and that's a good way to go, but we're going to have to make some hard decisions for the Browns. Andrew Barry is going to have to make some hard decisions going forward. He's going to have to start thinking about who he's going to sign and who he's not going to sign. This was the first indication that 
uh, can kicking is, is going to be used even further potentially than what they've done so far, but they haven't made a move on Mayfield and uh, there doesn't seem to be much progress on that front. So that is going to be the truly interesting thing going forward. All right. Uh, next ad here is for Fantrax. Fantrax. Um, let me just give a shout out to them. They are a free fantasy football league manager. It's the most customizable, easy to use and rich platform in the entire industry. PFF is PFF. We're guys here. We're gearing up to be playing in these leagues. So you're going to see what I'm doing. You see what others are doing. It's, it should be great this season. Um, it features multi-team trades. It features player salary and contract options, bonus points for TDs. For yardage, you can auto-generate salaries in there and add that extra wrinkle, which really makes it more like a realistic plan. You can't just pile up a bunch of great players and not have to worry about ever paying them and how that fits into the salary cap scheme. So if you're coming from another site, no problem. You can import all your guys into Fantrax for completely free. Sign up now and play it fantrax.com slash pff and get a chance to win a trip to any regular season game this year for you and your entire league that sounds pretty sweet actually uh make your league on fantrax and then head out to a free las vegas raiders game with your buddy fantrax.com slash pff the home of fantasy sports okay the next segment uh we're gonna hit where I'm going to call it stick to sports, but I don't know if it really falls into stick to sports, but we're going to do it anyway. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Okay. So this is a pretty, I'm going to wrap this back around to, to sports and, you know, to football. And it's kind of about sports. So again, I'm cheating a little bit as I cheat often on these stick to sports segments. So this one is about how discussions become flattened into like even though you're discussing X, it becomes something, it becomes about a bigger issue of whether it's culture war, whether it's nerds versus jocks, whether it's right versus left, all of, all of these different things. And I feel like this really came into, into focus for me, especially during the Simone Biles, everything that's gone on with her recently. So for those who have been living under a rock recently, um, she she was performing in the Olympics in the team uh, final and she was doing a vault. She had a tough landing. She said she got the, the, the she said later she articulated the fact she got what's called the twisties, which I, I think the best analogy for that seems like getting the yips when we're talking about a golfer trying to putt or a pitcher. There's some pitchers who have gotten the yips who just can't hit the strike zone anymore. Um, it's just a psychological barrier under what they're doing where she lost her orientation she started to lose some of her orientation in the air she decided that she didn't want to participate in the rest of the team finals and she's saying that she's doing it and i think it's a legitimate concern is is for her own safety and for and for the team now what i notice about this is immediately now and i'm talking immediately and this is at 7 a.m or between 7 and 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So this is at a, at a weird hour. But immediately, the reaction to when she announced she was pulling out, um, and the reactions that I'm seeing, uh, I'll cop to the fact that I'm mostly following you know, more liberal sports writer types. And those who are watching this live at that time in the morning are going to be you know, fans of that sort of thing, probably Simone Biles fans. Um, but what I noticed in this, maybe more than any phenomenon I've seen before, in my life is that the reaction to the event, right? The reaction to her pulling out was not, hmm, let's talk about the reasons for this. Let's talk about the implications on the team. 
let's talk about how this could happen. Let's talk about this, the particulars of her situation. It was almost like the immediate reaction to people who would want to instinctually defend her was to frame arguments and frame context and try to frame what happened in preparation for attacks from the other side, right? So rather than saying she had to do this and I, I feel sad about it because of the X, Y, and Z and not really think and just stay within yourself and not think about the larger picture, the reactions were already like, this is such a brave thing to do. This is something that people will think X about, but it's actually Y and blah, blah, blah. Like we're, we're and, the, and the reason that I found that so troubling is because it kind of allows people to default back into rather than sit with their emotions, sit with their sadness, sit with the, the particular thing, rather than talk about the individual person, it becomes like that person becomes flattened into this larger, larger issue. And that discussion becomes flattened a larger issue. And people feed in now to their anger about this. And there's a great essay that I found by Charlie Warzel. I think is how you pronounce that. He's a former writer for the New York Times opinion section, and he has a Substack. and his piece was called The Simone Biles Culture War Traveled Faster Than the News. Now, what he's talking about in this is he's talking a lot about the Twitter trending algorithm and how that promotes things and, and exacerbates these situations. I agree with that, but I think there's also like a reflection upon who we are when these things happen, right? I don't think Twitter is making the initial reactions happen the way they are. They may be exacerbating it. They may be pushing it out to a wider audience. They may be making the discussion even more intolerable, but they're not starting it. There is like a human instinct going on here for, for what's going on. And that, and that is like, let's talk about this whole flattening. So when, when um, I'm going to read a, a, a part of this piece from Warsaw, which I think is really interesting. He says, um, what happened with Biles? He says, what happens though, is just for a moment to view the story through the flattened, shitty culture war lens. Maybe that will mean nothing to you, and you'll go about your day unperturbed. More likely, it'll stick around in your head as a tiny data point. Depending upon your ideology, you might see it as further proof that, I never know how to say it, MAGA, I say MAGA, MAGA-adjacent chuds are awful racist jabronis looking to weaponize every story, or you might see it as proof that the left is defending their queen, of course, that's being said sarcastically, or glorifying failure. In either instance, you just get the feeling that you're surrounded by people who are deeply foolish and deranged, perhaps dangerously slow. And this realization might not send you into a depression, but it generally feels bad. And why I think that's this is really interesting is because it applies like beyond Biles. Uh, I mean, even when I talked about the Nick Chubb contract or the Fred Warner discussion on his contract before that, very quickly, these things get flattened. It's not about Nick Chubb being signed. It's about a running back being signed. Do running backs matter or not? Nerds versus football guys, so on and so forth, right? Like everything is becomes less and less about what actually happened and more about what side you're on. How is this evidence going to be used to further this argument and this back and forth? So what I'm trying to do personally from this, and I think it's good, um, is maybe to take a bit of this in and say, hmm, how can I think about things like when Nick Chubb contract happens, when other things happen, and try not to flatten things, right? And try to make it a discussion about this particular person or this particular event and so on and so forth. Um, actually, I got caught in one of these things just, just on Tuesday when I 
didn't really say too much. I just said this guy when I was talking about Dan Campbell, who I'd already canceled in a prior episode, tongue in cheek, of course, but um, where he was talking about the fact that he wanted these super intense practices. And he mentioned he wanted to get it to the point of almost being an all out brawl, but not quite go there. And he's talking about, you know, humorous stories about fighting and, and players punishing each other and who can take the punishment, who can't take the punishment. I mean, what? I'm not that upset about this thing. I don't really care that much about it. But people found this tweet where I just said this guy talking about it. And then they just projected everything onto it, right? They, they flattened it to being like, this is soft. It's the softness of America versus the football guys versus this. And, and, and everything goes on here. I mean, the Simone Biles thing, it got almost hilariously flattened when there was an article by Will Bunch, who was an opinion writer in the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, where his title was, in an America of suicide shifts and toxic work culture, Simone Biles speaks for all of us. It's like, what? You know, like, it, we, everything doesn't have to be about something else. Simone Biles does not have to be about, and he, he actually mentions this in the piece, the reevaluation of, um, of, of capitalism. You know, <laughs> that, that actually comes into the piece. As we're talking about, that actually comes into the part of the piece. Like, everything doesn't have to be about something else. And when we do that, we really lose the person who's part of this and thinking about the person who is part of this when we're all making about something else. So I said, that's a probably a good thing just to think about generally when it comes to analysis is how can we use what we're doing as analysts to make sure that we're trying to be, you know, unique to the person, unique to the situation. Um, and that's part of what I'm doing with Nick Chubb. I'm going to do with this running back piece coming out on Friday, looking at the value of it is to say, let's get some real numbers around it rather than you just never sign a running back or you just always sign a great talent. And, and that's what's going on here. But I thought that was a very interesting piece and I would encourage people to go out and read it. All right. So the next one we're going to go for here is a new segment. I don't know if I really uh, necessarily need to put the, the words on this, but uh, this goes from a context of analytics, and it's when keeping it go real goes wrong, analytics edition. When keeping it real goes wrong. So for people who may know, this Dave Chappelle show had a segment called When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong. But I see sometimes when friends of mine, so I'm going to be torching some, some friends of mine as part of this, uh, where we, we take it a little bit too far, right, as far as sticking to the analytical findings, sticking to what the numbers tell us, not bringing in enough of consensus or opinion, wisdom, football opinion and wisdom, and sticking to clearly like an evidence-based sort of thing. So I'm calling this the empiricism edition because this has to do with a discussion that I saw going back and forth between two friends of mine, uh, Frisco Josh, Josh Hermsmeyer, uh, many of you may know, kind of believes that nothing matters uh, in football altogether other than the quarterback. Um, I say that tongue in cheek, but somewhat seriously. And then between uh, Timo Risque, who is an analyst here at PFF. And they were getting to a little back and forth about whether or not the salary cap leads to parity in the NFL. So Josh's point was, there's no evidence that that's the case. If you look at the NFL over time, there has not been more parity now than there was before the salary cap. So therefore, I'm not going to believe that, that that moves forward at all. So the reason I say it's when keeping it real goes wrong here, their Pearson, empiricism edition is that, let's just think about this logically, right? Like sometimes I think it's good to think about logical extremes. Like if one team was 
had revenues of $200 million a year and another had revenues of $50 million a year. And you had a salary cap that either that they both could afford, is that going to level competition versus having no cap, no, no cap at all? I mean, of course, it's going to level the competition to have a salary cap on there, right? Um, we look at some other sports, and this is something we mentioned, whether it's European soccer, where you always have certain teams have an advantage versus others because of how much money they can spend. We look in baseball for many years, especially what went on with the Yankees and other big teams where there's not as much revenue sharing as, as there is in the NFL, where the lack of a salary cap had an effect there. If we look at basketball, where they have a soft cap, so there is a cap, but you can go over that cap as long as you're willing to pay a tax, pay an additional amount. Like if you go over by $20 million and you got to pay another $30 million to the NBA, even on top of that, right? So it becomes very, very, very costly, but there's still a soft cap there, which has allowed certain teams like the Warriors during the last couple of years of having Kevin Durant there, it allows them to extend those runs. And by extending those runs, I mean, you are lowering parity. So I think it's kind of one of those obvious things, but the reason that Josh wouldn't agree to it is because in the NFL, I'll agree that the salary cap has less to do with parity because of the fact that the quarterback is so, so important. Um, and that if you have a franchise quarterback, you can extend and you can be good for, for so long. But again, that doesn't mean that the salary cap has no effect. It just means it's muted because of that. And I think there's also this thing when we're looking at pure empirical basis, we need to think a little bit more about confounding factors, right? So a confounding factor in the fact that we're seeing all this parody is the fact that uh, Tom Brady played for one team for so long that was so successful and was this outlier, right? The Patriots were a true, true outlier, especially in the NFL, where if you take them out of the equation, you'll see that parity has increased greatly over time. But by keeping them in there and then this ridiculous run that they've been in, going to so many Super Bowls, um, going winning so many Super Bowls, having the best record uh, so many different times, that it skews all the numbers there. So this, this overall truth about parity being increasing with the salary cap is, is mitigated by this confounding variable that we have to account for. So, but again, this can apply to a lot of different things. Now, I think that what football analytics has been good at and what statistical analysis has been good at is properly weighing evidence and lowering the expectations for certain things. But we want to make sure that we're not, you know, keeping it real and having it go wrong by saying the evidence doesn't show X. So therefore we don't need to acknowledge X that it's a possibility. Another example I'll give is the evidence does not show that quarterbacks who throw more often, there's a disadvantage to that. Or on, on the flip side of it, people will say, Oh, you know, guys like Russell Wilson in the past or, Lamar Jackson or some other quarterbacks who maybe don't throw as much, they have an advantage as far as their efficiency is concerned because they're not throwing as often. And it's the more you throw, the harder it is to be as high of efficiency. Now, there isn't any evidence that that's the case, but I think it's also foolish to dismiss it rather than saying it's probably less of a factor than we think. And again, let's go to a, an extreme on this, right? Let's go to a, a, a total extreme on this. And that would be... Um, I was looking at some stats for, for army football, right? And this is a, a team that really just runs the ball all the time. Now you're not going to see this in the NFL. So you're never going to get an example of this sort of thing. Right. But it's just running the ball, running the ball, running the ball, running the ball. 
Um, if you look over the course of the last season for their for their offense, uh, they were averaging 57 rush attempts a game to 1.8. No, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the wrong thing. 57 rush attempts a game to 6.3 pass attempts a game. <laughs> okay, like that's that's pretty extreme. Um, yet, if you look at some years that they've had. And not so much in 2020, but if we go back further and we look at some years, uh, their quarterback in 2019, Kelvin Hopkins Jr., in those 77 pass attempts he had, not so great as far as a percentage. He only, he only completed 42% of those, but he averaged yards per attempt of 7.5 yards per attempt. Um, and the team as a whole uh, was even higher than that, was way over eight, nine yards per attempt. I mean, that is pretty solid. So you have to think to yourself, would it have been possible if they were not running the ball 60 times a game and passing the ball 50 times a game? Would it have been possible if we flipped that around and we said, we're going to take the same quarterback, we're going to make him throw the ball 60 times a game, and we're only going to run the ball 10, time, 10 times a game? Do you think there's any chance that an Army quarterback could be averaging seven, eight, nine yards per attempt as we have seen in the past? No, it's impossible, right? So like having fewer pass attempts, having the defense totally set up to stop the run, having to be able to take these chunk shots in those situations because the safeties are playing in, that does help the offense. So it is a thing. It is a phenomenon. We cannot dismiss it as a phenomenon, but we can say that it's lesser than we think. Um, but even in the NFL, there is a confounding factor of quarterbacks who are good are going to throw it more often. So even though you have a really, really good quarterback, like let's say Patrick Mahomes throwing it all the time, that might be lowering his efficiency, but it's still going to be high. And it's still not going to look like it's lowering his efficiency because he comes from a higher baseline. And then you have worse quarterbacks who are not throwing it as often, which will raise their efficiency. But then when you look at them across the board, you're saying, Hey, quarterbacks who throw it less often and quarterbacks who throw it all the time, basically have the same efficiency. So there's no relationship there. The confounding factor is, is not part of it. So I just think that generally we want to be careful in analytics to not dismiss a phenomenon, but instead concentrate on the fact whether it's does the run need to be established, does the matter who the running back is for how well play action works, does throwing the ball more often lead to lower efficiency, all those things. We want to say the evidence is not there. But it's not because it doesn't exist. It's because it's a very small amount. And we should be thinking about the benefits that you get by operating without that assumption or by operating by minimizing that assumption outweigh whatever benefit, even if it's – we exist, that we admit that the benefit exists, that imperceptible benefit that does not show up in the data. But don't dismiss that it exists. All right, so uh, last year is our – segment on um on underdog so underdog um if you want best ball season it's all over the place use promo code pff get a 10 put a ten dollar deposit and you get a free edge subscription so you're going to get access to all of the research that i am about to talk about and what i'm going to talk about today is our expected fantasy points tool and how we can use this in your analysis and how I've used it to identify some valued running backs and, um, and wide receivers. So just to quickly talk about our expected points tool. So here's what I've done. I take every single touch or target that a player gets. So every rushing attempt, 
every target for a wide receiver for rushing attempt. It's based upon, you know, down and distance, you can get different and where the direction of the run, you can get different averages for how much you're expecting and how many yards you're going to get based upon the field position. You get an expectation for how often you're going to score. If you're running the ball from the one yard line, you have like a 50% chance of getting a touchdown. If you're running it from even the 20 yard line, it's extremely low. It's less than 10%. It's like barely anything. Right. So those things make a big difference where people try to pile everything into red zone where that's a bad idea. So you have that for targets. Not only do we have those factors in, you know, where the target location is. So are you in the end zone, which is going to give you a high expected touchdown and high expected fantasy points there? Um, are you in the middle of the field versus the sidelines? The middle of the field is much more fruitful because there's a lot more run after the catch opportunity in those situations. Um, is it a contested catch or not? Contested catches way, way down on your opportunity there. And then also if it's play action or not, play action extends the amount of yardage that you get, even accounting for depth of target. I mean, play action gets you a larger depth of target, but then it also gives you even more of a yardage expectation because your completion percentage expectation is higher on a play action play because you're getting more open. And because you're more open, you're getting more run after the catch. So it's taking account all these different things, every single play, every single player. Uh, You can divide it by week if you need to on here. And it's going to give you the expected fantasy point number, which is really interesting because then you can compare that to how a player actually scored. Certain players are going to maintain the efficiency above or going to be below. That's definitely true. Um, But very often when we see extremes, we're going to see regression and we're going to see guys where we say, hey, I didn't realize they had that fruitful of a role. And maybe it was a couple of passes that went off of their hands in the end zone where it could have really triggered a much different perception of someone versus what we actually think about them. So for, for running backs, I'm going to go into first here. And I mean, one of the takeaways I have here isn't that big of a deal, which is how undisputed it should be that Christian McCaffrey is the 101 in these leagues. I think he is in almost every league now. I think that's solidified. So I don't have to go into it too much, but just so you know, his expected points per game was extremely strong, almost 25 per game in a PPR league. He scored 30. There's just nothing nothing, nothing to worry about with, with Christian McCaffrey um, other than maybe injury risk, but that's, that's true of everyone. Right. Um, more interesting takeaways, Joe Mixon. Uh, he is the RB 13 in some leagues that I'm looking at here. He came out as being the RB five in expected fantasy points last year. He really picked up his, his passing workload. He's getting valuable touches. It's a high volume offense. And if you look at that offense, we're seeing, um, Boyd and Higgins and Jamar Chase, their ADPs are starting to climb as we've gotten this positive news on Joe Burrow being ready for week one of the season. Not so much for Mixon. He was probably a little bit higher and now has fallen over the last, you know, couple of weeks. So I think there's a long way to go for Mixon, who's not even an RB1, according to ADP, where he was a top five guy last year. And I think he'd easily get into that without Gio Bernard there. And Gio Bernard logged 20 targets in the, in the first six weeks of the season where Mixon was playing. Um, that's 20 targets available, potentially go to Mixon where they didn't bring in anyone who's really that receiving back. So I think he's a really, really solid pick there. Um, Nick Chubb on the other side, I know we talked about him from a contract perspective, but from a fantasy perspective, pretty risky. Uh, he was... 27th in expected fantasy points per game in PPR format last year, although he finished ninth and now he's being drafted at RB 10 right now, even though he was 27th in his expectation, he scored more touchdowns than he would have expected. He ran off a lot bigger runs. You know, he was huge. He was way over 
five yards a carry. We, uh, we've seen some stat out here about in the fourth quarter, he averaged 10 yards per carry on some big, big, big runs. So just expecting that going forward, even for a supremely talented back like Nick Chubb, expecting that efficiency is probably fool's errand to really think that's going to happen. His actual scoring versus his expected scoring last year was 35% higher, where we didn't see that for any of the top players last year. They had that much of a, of a bump that they're getting. So that's going to regress somewhat, making him risky. Now, I have a couple of guys in the mid-rounds that I want to talk about that I think are pretty interesting. Um, and guess what? They're going to be guys you're not going to love taking because who do you love taking the mid-round as a running back anyway? And if you love taking them, then they wouldn't be a value. So one of them is Miles Gaskin. And Gaskin, I was shocked. I did not believe this. But when you look at the fantasy expected fantasy points per game, PPR points, based upon his usage, he was sixth above Derrick Henry, right? Uh, <laughs> way above Austin Eckler last year. He was sixth. Now, he produced a little bit less than you would have hoped for on this mainly because he wasn't really good on touchdowns. He only scored three rushing touchdowns where you would have expected seven based upon his workload. Now, maybe he'll be taken out on the goal line, but again, that's kind of being built into his price, right? Is the fact that Malcolm Brown is there and maybe he'll be taken out around the goal line. Um, but he did produce more rushing yards than you would have expected. He did produce a lot more receiving yards than you would have would expected. He was a He was very, very good there. And he did produce more receiving touchdowns than you would have expected. It was just really the rushing and not getting into the end zone, losing four touchdowns that you would have expected there that ended up moving him, moving him down. And what's interesting about his ADP is it went up when the draft passed and they didn't bring in anyone. The Dolphins did not bring in anyone until uh, Jared Dokes in the sixth round of the NFL draft, but it's kind of flattened and fallen since then he's RB 25. And like I said, he was a top six guy in ex expectation last year. So there's just a lot of discount priced into here. Um, and when I looked at him with Tua versus without Tua, his average was actually a little bit higher with Tua. And the games that Tua started, he had an expected fantasy points of 18.7 in PPR leagues per game versus 17.6 on, on the season. So there's no risk there, at least from what we saw last year, of playing with, with Tua this year. Uh, there's risk there with, for his role. I think all that's true, but huge, huge discount. And the last guy I'm going to talk about, really no one's going to like this, and that's David Johnson. And I'm saying he's worth a mid-round pick because he is RB 40 to 45, depending upon what league you're looking at right now in his ADP. He is the lowest lead running back, at least by ADP lead running back. He has the worst ADP of any team, any running back in, in, the, in the NFL who has the lead running back for their team. No one's being taken as late as Johnson is. Now, I realize the offense could be a mess with Terod Taylor, but – it's really the defense that's awful with the Texans, right? I mean, they've invested in the offensive line. They have they have Cooks there. Um, they have uh, you know some other players who are who are decent there, and so I think that's a concern is the overall offense, which may be a little bit overrated with Terod Taylor there too. He's had some good running backs when he was with Buffalo, some great performances by LaShawn McCoy and others when he was uh, with Buffalo. And the other problem is they brought in all these dudes. They brought in Philip Lindsay. They brought in Mark Ingram. They brought in Rex Burkhead. But even with the addition of all those guys, like, is that worse than having Duke Johnson there? I don't know. I mean, maybe. Maybe it's worse. Maybe they don't have getting split up. I wouldn't be surprised if one of them doesn't even make the team. None of them are making a huge amount of money. Even Lindsay, 
is a $3.5 million contract where if they cut them, their sunk cost is just a million bucks. So they could, they could get out of that. And Johnson was the RB 13 last year by expected fantasy points per game. That includes time that he had missed getting injured in some of these games. He got a lot of workload. He didn't get many goal line carries yet. He was still had that high floor because he was playing so much. He was playing over 75% of snaps in nine out of the 11 full games that he played last year. So will he likely be a good running back, uh, a top running back this year? Probably not. Was he a pretty good running back last year? He was, believe it or not. 4.7 yards per attempt, uh, 6.8 yards per target. He did not look like a dusted you know, running back. For, for Many people probably didn't watch him other than that first week of the season where they played the Chiefs on opening night, and he had that nice long touchdown run where he went right around a, a safety and showed some a maneuverability and some lateral movement there. So again, Nothing to love here, but at RB45, it's like, are you going to take him or are you going to take Rashad Perryman? Are you going to take him or are you going to take Gabe Davis or one of these sorts of guys? I think he's plenty worth it at that, at that range as a, versus a fourth or fifth tier receiver, and it can be profitable for you if you do so. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you know, Go check it out on Apple. Leave a review there if you want. And there's also a Discord at the PFF server. You'll find it on the PFF homepage. If you go down to the bottom to Discord, go ahead and look on it. We have a channel. Anyone can register for this. You don't have to be a subscriber at PFF. We have a channel for unexpected points and a discussion going on there after every show or piece of news drops in the NFL. But thank you so much for listening. Uh, seen the numbers going up quite a bit recently. So this has been fantastic. And as we get more into the season, I think I'm going to have some other interviews coming during preseason, including a coach, a coach slash game management guy, which I think will be really, really interesting to get into some, some stuff coming up in a couple of weeks. Otherwise, I'll be talking at you again next week. And thanks so much for tuning in. 